17th episode of This Week in FCPA. This week we have a special guest announcement. Hi, I'm Millie. And I'm Michaela. A little bird told us that it's her 100th episode of This Week in FCPA. Hey, Millie, what does FCPA stand for anyway? It stands for Fake Cat Pac-Man Actors. Are you sure about that? No, not really. Do you know what it stands for? No clue. That's why I was asking you. Anyway, Tom and Dad, we both want to congratulate you on your 100th episode of This Week in Fake Cat Pac-Man Actors. Millie! Thank you, Millie and Michaela. And now a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional and independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small to mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's compliance and ethics programs, check out the Affiliated Monitors website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In today's episode, we take a look at a wide-ranging list of topics, including the Dun & Bradstreet FCPA enforcement action, which was recently concluded. We take a look at uh, transparency around the selection of monitorships, the Yahoo data breach, the Facebook uh, continued imbroglio, and a variety of other topics. I know you'll enjoy this 100th episode anniversary edition. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for the 100th episode of This Week in FCPA. Yes, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, madams and messieurs, seniors and senoritas, Jay Rosen and I have hit that auspicious anniversary of 100 episodes of This Week in FCPA. So we are celebrating this week uh, for the week ending April 27th, 2018, with the appropriate name, the 100th Anniversary Edition. So, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Let's uh, let's jump right in. We're going to have a jam-packed 100th anniversary episode. Fair enough, Jay. So starting off, we had a uh, FCPA settlement this week that I think is very significant. Dun & Bradstreet settled um, their FCPA enforcement action with uh, receiving a declination from the Department of Justice under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. They uh, paid a uh, fine, penalty, and um, profit disgorgement uh, to the Securities and Exchange Commission of $9 million. Uh, like I said, this is the first FCPA case uh, we have seen under the new corporate enforcement policy, and a very interesting I think it really portends a, a new era for compliance, emphasizing the importance of doing compliance uh, during the pendency of any investigation. And I think we can only give a, a big kudos to uh, Dun & Bradstreet uh, for coming out of this uh, very long journey at the end of the day with such a superior result. I uh, wholeheartedly agree. And, uh, you know, we can always read the tea leaves and what the um, – press release says from the DOJ, and it says 
through a thorough investigation and full cooperation, including making current and former employees available for interviews and translating foreign language documents to English. So that kind of heartens me for my old life. And finally, uh, DMB has enhanced its compliance program and uh, its internal accounting over uh, s system control and they fired 11 individuals involved with the uh, China misconduct. So we got a little bit of everything here. We got the new enforcement policy, uh, some individuals prosecuted under Yates. So this certainly does look like the way forward in the new year. So I'd just like to end this segment, Jay, with uh, the DOJ specifically stating, quote, we have reached this conclusion despite the bribery committed by the company's subsidiaries in China. It, uh, uh, the effect of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy could not be more clear from that statement uh, with uh, bribery in China, yet they received a declination. So once again, kudos to Dun & Bradstreet, and uh, we're going to have to see. Uh, I think this is going to make compliance programs, compliance practitioners, compliance professionals, and chief compliance officers even more important going forward, Jay. So we've got, uh, I thought, a really interesting uh, article uh, around um, transparency, transparency and monitorships over on the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, so um, I, I think we've been following this matter for, it might be 18 or 24 months, but uh, Dylan Tokar, who was a former employee, or rather a former reporter at um, Global Investigations Review Just Anti-Corruption, had filed a Freedom of Information Act with the DOJ to reveal the names of monitor candidates uh, that have been working on monitorships over the past several years. He uh, had been denied at several steps, but finally uh, the court is agreeing with Mr. Tokar and says that they're going to release the names of uh, folks who were up for different monitorships. <clears throat> in Veronica's article, she cites three different instances, once in 2011, once in 2015, and now uh, in 2016, where there was a situation where the courts uh, wanted to step in and reveal certain information about um, DOJ monitorships. And at each step of the way, uh, the court was reversed and saying that this information uh, did not belong to the court. It was not court records, and it were was uh, the private information of the companies being monitors. Uh, now, Veronica's position that she takes in her article is that she says, in the past, she may have argued whether a monitor's open report should be protected by confidentiality versus disclosed to the public depended at least on part of the goals of the monitorship. The notion, however, that the identities of monitorship candidates should be kept protected, at least in my mind, does not seem worth the fight. So um, it's it's been some interesting back and forth. Um, Tom, what do you think about making those names public? So it would certainly, I think, obviously lends itself and leads to greater transparency. The um, I think it's uh, given the perceived abuses uh, around monitorships in the past, where we had uh, monitor fees north of fifty million dollars, uh, and a, re a DOJ response to that 
Um, I think we're moving towards having greater transparency, and and I, I can only think it would help uh, uh, not only professionalize monitorships, uh, but uh, bring a level of um, um, comfort, perhaps, uh, that everyone is being uh, treated fairly and no one's being uh, given uh, either inside information or insider status. Yeah, I, w I would agree too that it's a, it's a good thing to bring additional transparency in. Um, the next article we have is uh, also from Global Investigation Reviews. And uh, recently in New York City this past week, there was a, a Practicing Law Institute conference on anti-corruption development. And um, there was a panel that Charles Kane, the Securities and Exchange Commission's FCPA unit chief was on, and they asked him about the uh, new or the relatively new ISO 3701 uh, anti-corruption, anti-bribery standard. And um, Charlie Kane said, I'm a little skeptical of the ISO 37001 certification. It does have a little bit of the flavor of a check the box exercise. And uh, this is something that we've been uh, ping-ponging back and forth for the past couple of years uh, as the standard was being developed and now that it was introduced. And, um, you know, this is uh, going to, I think, continue to be out there, although both Walmart and Microsoft have uh, gotten this standard. I know, Tom, that you had a, a debate a while back ago with uh, Christy Grant Hart about uh, ISO, and have your uh, views changed at all on the matter? Uh, not in the least. Okay. So I guess, Jay, the, the takeaway I would, would take away from this, uh, I, I suppose that's a meta comment about meta comments. Nevertheless, uh, when you have the regulators uh, voicing concerns, it's certainly one thing for you and I to say the regulators are going to have concerns. But when you have the chief of the FCPA unit at the Securities and Exchange Commission raising real concerns, and uh, one, it's a paper program, two, it's going to require – it's really um, – not not something that's going to be on its face persuasive. It could be some piece of evidence the government would look at. But uh, people need to understand that this ISO standard and an ISO certification does not protect you. You still have to actually do compliance. You have to operationalize your compliance program. And uh, I was really gratified that a regulator would would express at least that they have some concerns uh, because I think it drives home the point that uh, ISO 3701 certification is not going to protect you um, either if you have it yourself or if you uh, have it from a third party. Uh, I'd like to button up with uh, Charles Kane's final quote on this in the article. It says, if you can't tell me why it works, then it probably doesn't work and you aren't good at your job because you did not tailor it to your company or to your specific risk analysis. So uh, I, th I think that shuts the door nicely on it. Uh, next up, uh, tell us what's happening to our friends Yahoo up in the Bay Area. Well, Jay, I would have to say they're our former friends because uh, Yahoo doesn't exist anymore. So um, Yahoo agreed to a $35 million fine penalty to sell charges that it misled investors in failing to disclose one of the large, world's largest data breaches. Um this was, uh, I can't remember, hundreds of millions of account users. I'm a Yahoo. I was a Yahoo account holder. 
So I was one of them. Uh, and Yahoo knew about this data breach for over two years before they disclosed it. And they would never have disclosed it but for uh, the uh, uh, merger they uh, engaged in or that were actually were bought by Verizon. And it came out in the uh, pre-acquisition uh, investigation. Um, this was just um, complete irresponsibility by Yahoo. Um, uh, they knew about it back in uh, 2014. Um, they disclosed it in 2016. The um, penalty, I thought, was just uh, way less than what the company deserved. Now, this was not the penalty was not for not disclosing. It was for uh, not disclosing in a way to mislead investors, because I think the SEC properly recognized that had Yahoo disclosed this, their stock would have would have taken a, a, a tanking. So um, this is the first real uh, significant uh, SEC action involving failure to disclose data. If this had happened um, 29 days from now, after GDPR goes live, uh, the fines would have been exponentially higher just in Europe alone. So um, I think the uh, SEC is finding its way on this issue, number one. Number two, they recognize that Yahoo no longer exists and that uh, hopefully uh, Verizon will be a little more forthcoming in terms of uh, communicating to its account holders when its data is breached. But it's still the first. So in $35 million, obviously, it's not something uh, to laugh at. So it would be fair to say after, um, where do we go all the way back? Home Depot and um, Target. Uh, Target, that it is probably good operating uh, policies and procedures that if you know of the fact that your company's uh, internet and security has been breached and you've had a data breach that it would probably make sense to be as forthcoming as you can and let the, the regulators know about it as soon as possible. Well, it's certainly um, going to be next, a legal requirement now after uh, GDPR goes live May 25. Totally. Uh, now we have uh, another story that comes to us from GIR, Just Anti-Corruption by Kelly Swanson, uh, former FCPA um, Chief Pat Stokes hits back against the government use of broad tolling agreements. What's Pat talking about? So, Jay, a tolling agreement is something that suspends a statute of limitations, and that's significant in the FCPA world because there's a five-year statute of limitations, meaning you can only go back five years. So from today of April 27, 2018, that would be April 27, 2013, if it was April 26, 2013, or before, uh, it would be uh, barred by the statute of limitations. Typically, what a company is asked to do by the government is in, uh, sign what's called a tolling agreement, saying the statute of limitations uh, will not be brought into play during the pendency of that enforcement action. Um, so if we use my date example again, Everything from uh, April 27th, 2013 forward up until the resolution of a case, if there was a tolling agreement, could be uh, covered in the enforcement action if the tolling agreement was signed. What the Department of Justice, or at least Pat Stokes' concern is, is he thinks the DOJ is is being too aggressive and uh, b being too aggressive by saying that not only do we want to toll 
the statute of limitations for matters that we uh, are able to ascertain from five years back from this date. But we want to go back basically uh, to the history of your corporation. If we find any other instances of bribery and corruption, we want the statute of limitations told against that. So Pat finds that is really an overreach um, going forward. He does acknowledge that the government has a significant amount of leverage in asking for this uh, pause uh, based upon the uh, tolling agreement of the statute of limitations and that he thinks it's uh, really a rare company that would refuse to enter into a tolling agreement. What he really advocates is that you can actually uh, negotiate with the government over uh, some of these issues, and if the government takes this uh, broad view or broad waiver view, um, Pat thinks that you need to push back on this um, because it's really uh, not the purpose of a tolling agreement to allow uh, the Department of Justice to investigate conduct, which would have occurred prior to uh, when it became actionable based upon the statute of limitations. So uh, interesting argument by Pat. Uh, I would just say that uh, I find this really consistent with Pat's overall approach uh, when he was the head of the unit, uh, I think he had an even-handed approach. He certainly, as a prosecutor, saw the need for uh, prosecution, aggressive enforcement. But uh, I don't think that uh, certainly he advocated, he did not publicly advocate a very strong and strident uh, aggressive positions by the Department of Justice and things like uh, tolling agreements and uh, the background investigation. So uh, I, w- I always found Pat's uh, uh stewardship of the FCPA uh, unit at the Department of Justice to be, I would characterize as even-handed. And, and this, this, uh, his thoughts uh, at this conference, I, f- I would find, I find it to be really consistent with what I read and heard of him when he was uh, with the Department of Justice. Okay. So next up, Jay, is our good friends at Starbucks. And I say our good friends at Starbucks because it's continuing the um, imbroglio that uh, Starbucks found itself when they had two African-American men who were waiting for a colleague uh, arrested for uh, trespass. So this is um, something I think is going to keep Starbucks in the eye around compliance for quite some time. And the um, uh, Matt Kelly, our colleague, from the Everything Compliance podcast, took a look at it on his blog, Radical Compliance. I took a look at it uh, on my blog from the risk management perspective. Matt looked at it from the compliance policy angle. And then we both uh, explored both of those in this week's uh, Compliance Into the Weeds podcast, episode 79. So I think there's lots of um, lessons there for the compliance practitioner, but uh, I would encourage you to, to take a look at what Matt and I had to say on it. So there are two things I'd like you to amplify, if you could. Uh, Matt makes a nice point about how large organizations need to be nimble and responsive to changing situations. And you really go in in quite in depth in your articles talking about the difference between forecasting an event and doing an actual risk assessment. Uh, Correct. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting because Matt – really articulated the the balancing acts and the difficulty and what you really have to do in in stating a broad policy, but giving uh, the frontline supervisors who at Starbucks are the store managers enough uh, leeway to uh, t- to have a, a wide variety of uh, 
uh, decisions available to them based upon the facts on the ground. So um, basically flexibility, and, and that means you have to train employees, but you also have to screen employees. You can't have a, someone who uh, is <clears throat> going to be prejudiced against African-Americans as a store manager uh, when that prejudice would uh, require their through those eyes, they would then see a, a danger and require police arrest two men for uh, trespassing. And, and what I saw, Jay, is um, what I wanted to question or ask people to think about is, what is the business of your organization? Uh, because 25 years ago or 20 years ago, Starbucks sold coffee. But Starbucks really sells itself now as <clears throat> and markets itself as something very different. Whether that be the uh, your home office away from home, whether that be a corporate, uh, the common green, whether it be the common square or the third place for you to hang out, home office or Starbucks, if that's going to be what you sell yourself as, as inclusive, allowing people to hang out at your store, uh, you have to uh, do a little bit better job than uh, they did. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think what's interesting to look at is their um – you know, um, uh, response to the incident. Uh, there is a positive thing that they will be having a training session, closing all stores for half a day in May to do that. So that does mean that they've, um, you know, they've owned up that they've done something wrong. But in terms of uh, damage control to the brand, uh, it will remain to be seen uh, if this is enough of a, a strong reaction to uh mollify the public. Jay, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I appreciated their response. They gave a very strong response. But let me just focus on this uh, stand down, one afternoon stand down for um, training. Think about the cost to Starbucks to do that. I don't know if it's on a U.S. only or worldwide basis, but if it's even if it's U.S. only, this is going to cost them tens of millions perhaps even hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, just in lost revenue. So these are the kinds of costs that are not often talked about uh, in a situation like this where you have huge reputational damage, even if you didn't violate the law. So uh, this can be the kind of cost that uh, you can have if you're not uh, fully managing the risk that uh, you have going forward. But I did appreciate Starbucks' uh, um, response uh, to date, and I look forward to uh, seeing what they come up with. Yep. So uh, next up on our list, uh, we have an article from the Washington Post by Tony Rom, and the uh, headline is uh, Facebook's handpicked watchdogs gave it high marks for privacy, even as the tech giant lost control of user data. So what's interesting is they um, bring up a situation that when uh, both Facebook and Google had issues with the FTC, that they were asked to bring on an independent uh, third-party monitor to make sure that they were, uh, you know, dealing with data breach assessments. Both firms brought on PwC, who seemed to have uh, returned some very slim reports that the uh, clients, being Facebook and being um, Google were both in compliance. And then furthermore, uh, going forward, the, it turned out that they weren't there. And what's interesting is we had somebody 
from the FTC, Megan Gray. Uh, she is also a fellow at the Stanford Law School Center for Internet and Society. And she called out the agency in new research paper last week to consider changes to the way it brokers and enforces its own settlements with companies like Facebook, Google, and Uber. Under her proposal, the FTC would play a more active role in overseeing companies' privacy checkups, and those firms would have to turn over more information to the FTC so the watchdogs can ensure that the consumer that they're protecting consumer privacy. Uh, in response, the FTC spokesman said that Gray is not working on privacy or data security investigations at the agency, including its probe into Facebook, and her article and any other comments represent her personal opinion and not the views of the FTC. So uh, thoughts on that? So uh, I was really interested in your thoughts from uh, working at Affiliated Monitors because um, – if the monitor comes in and does a whitewash or um, really doesn't do a good job, it doesn't do anyone any good. And it didn't do Facebook any good. It didn't do the FTC any good. It didn't do the public any good. So that I guess to, uh, not to uh, toot the horn of affiliated monitors who sponsors this podcast, but you've got to have professional monitors who know what they're doing. So um, there you go. Yeah, I I, 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 I will let you say it at that. Well said. So uh, now uh, we are getting to the part of the podcast where uh, you tell us where you're traveling, what you're doing, and, and what's happening. So what's on your plate, Tom? So uh, we are uh, just a few days away from having the book published, so uh, looking forward to that. Um, uh, but I'm having a quite an interesting May, Jay. Uh, the first week, at first full week in May, I'm speaking at the LEC that's the Legal Ethics and Compliance International Com Compliance Congress in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, uh, many of the listeners may know, uh, recognize Carlos Ayers, who is uh, I've had on the, my podcast from time to time, a good friend of uh, the podcast and a well-known compliance practitioner from Sao Paulo. Uh, was instrumental in getting me an invitation to go speak. I'm going to talk about metrics and data, something near and dear to my heart. Uh, in uh, uh, That will be on May 8th at the time of my talk. The, uh, on May 17th, Thursday, May 17th, I'm talking to the Houston chapter of ACAMS, and my topic there will be driving compliance and ethics through data analysis. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the month, I'm uh, speaking at uh, Compliance Week, and I'm leading a session on using frameworks to provide compliance competency. And by that, I mean frameworks such as the 10 Hallmarks, the COSO formulation, and others and really see how you can converge those and how they integrate together to give you all a, um, a very uh, uh, a well-rounded, holistic approach to uh, your compliance program. So I hope you can join. I'd love for you to join me in uh, Sao Paulo. I recognize that may be a little problematic or at least <laughs> difficult, uh, but perhaps you'll be uh, in Houston or uh, Washington and can join me for one of those events. I know uh, you're planning to be in Compliance Week uh, 2018, I think, Jay. Yeah, so I will, I will definitely take you up on your offer in D.C., and uh, I will also be in San Francisco on May 18th for a one-day uh, SCCE, the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics uh, Conference, and these are a real nice opportunity uh, just to get together with fellow practitioners on our regional basis, and they do a great job of putting together these uh, one-day seminars 
that you can get your CPE, but you can also uh, catch up with folks. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. So uh, 100 episodes. So it's uh, it's been really quite a ride, Jay, and I uh, appreciated Millie um, uh, and Michaela introducing today's uh, episode. I think as a dad, though, we do have to give you downgrade points uh, because they could not explain what uh, FCPA was. Although I would note it took me several years to uh, get my daughter to spell that correctly. So uh, we've moved on to what it actually means, but she's a little bit older than, than your girls. So I uh, was very gratified that they were able to join us uh, for the introduction. And uh, you want to take us home? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, uh, we would like to thank you for joining us for uh, episode 100 of This Week in FCPA. We appreciate you taking time out of your day and your weekend to join us to discuss all things compliance and ethics and FCPA. And as Tom mentioned to me before we got on the air, uh, we would be remiss to point out that the top two teams in Major League Baseball now are the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox. So once again, for Tom Fox and myself, Jay Rosen, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this 100th anniversary edition of This Week in FCPA. I hope you've enjoyed many of the other episodes throughout this podcast series almost as much as Jay and I have enjoyed bringing them to you. If you have not done so uh, and listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out even broadly or more broadly about the only weekly wrap-up in compliance. You can reach Jay at jrosenaffiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this 100th anniversary episode of This Week in FCPA. And I hope you'll join us again next week where we take a look at the uh, week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.